It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Founding father James Madison would be appalled at the level of polarization in America today. Constitutional scholar Jeff Rosen says Madison's central fear was factions of all kinds, religious, class-based, political. Social media not only exacerbates these divides, says Rosen, it eliminates slow deliberation on important issues. Brexit votes and Twitter polls and instant decisions are the opposite of what the Constitution is trying to create. What is the role of social media in our democracy? Can America's democratic system withstand pressures from platforms like Facebook and Twitter? Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. James Madison, who served as America's fourth president, was big on reason. He figured thoughtful and measured deliberation would result in grounded decisions. Jeff Rosen, who runs the National Constitution Center, says various things have destroyed the slow consideration. Chief among them? Social media. The dialogue that happens on Twitter, Facebook, and others has led to geographic divides. We're isolating ourselves to regions in the country where our neighbors think like us. And when it comes to national issues, passion is the motivating factor, not reason. Rosen explains why this scenario is a threat to American democracy. He speaks with Jeffrey Goldberg, editor of The Atlantic. Their conversation was held June 25, 2018. Here's Goldberg. So the, the topic, and this is something that Jeff and I have been uh, talking about for a while and he's been writing on, um, uh, something I'm fascinated by is, is, is imagining what James Madison would think about the state of our democracy today and the way we govern ourselves today. Um, and I want um, Jeff to, to introduce this broad subject, um, not only through the prism of social media, but we're going to talk about um, social media. But the, the specific question, and, and then blow it out, is, is um, what would James Madison make of social media's role in our democracy today, and what would worry him about the ability of democracy to withstand the pressures of social media? So... Madison in Federalist 55 says the following. In all large assemblies of any character composed, passion never fails to wrest the scepter from reason. Even if every Athenian had been Socrates, Athens would still have been a mob. And this sums up Madison and Hamilton and the author of the Federalist Papers and the framers' central concern with the tension between reason and passion. Their fear is that direct democracies, such as existed in Athens, would lead inevitably to demagogues and the mob, to the rule of passion rather than reason. I have just come back from Athens. I was there two days ago and sat at the Agora and saw the assembly of uh, 5,000 people where the Athenians deliberated. And their example of rashly choosing war and being misled by silver-tongued demagogues 
was so centrally on the framer's mind that the Federalist Papers is suffused with a desire to have a representative republic rather than a direct democracy, and also to slow down deliberation so that reason can prevail. It's an unfamiliar part of Madison's thinking that is central to the entire design of the Constitution. Well, Mad- you say it's unfamiliar. Well, it w- I was unfamiliar to me until I read the literature on it and also reread the Federalist Papers because we think, well, I don't know whether it's unfamiliar or not. You, of course, know all this stuff in advance. Well, I, I, like you, not only have I memorized the Federalist Papers, but I can perform them. You can. And I just choose not to. I, I choose to do it. That's why I'm here right now. I'm reciting parts of the Federalist Papers. What's unfamiliar is the fact that Madison is in favor of majority rule, but only slowly over time. He's not an aristocrat like Hamilton. Of course, it's an irony that Hamilton is the rap star of the moment because this is the uh, man who wants a president for life and a senate for life and is really afraid of rule by the mob. Madison definitely wants majorities to form, but he designs all these cooling mechanisms so they can't form fast. So that's why this is relevant to social media. Brexit votes and Twitter polls and instant decisions are the opposite of what the Constitution is trying to create. The central fear is faction. How does Madison define a faction in Federalist 10? A faction is a majority or a minority animated by passion rather than reason and directed towards self-interest rather than the public good. So Madison is, uh, has a couple ways of preventing factions from forming. First of all, representation. No direct democracy as in Athens, no initiative or referenda. You have to have cool uh, representatives who will deliberate in the people's name. Second, checks and balances and separation of powers. It's really important that the president is not the king and is checked by Congress and an independent judiciary. States' rights are very important because uh, the the, uh, states can reach different conclusions from the federal government. But most importantly, the size of the American Republic. Madison is trying to uh, respond to Montesquieu, who insists that democracy in large republics is impossible because when you've got 6,000 people deliberating face-to-face, they can't reach reasoned decisions. Madison has two answers to that. First, representation. This is a new science of politics that is making representative democracy possible. And second, the fact that America is so big means that it will be really hard for factions to organize quickly, to discover each other, to plan their nefarious schemes, and to uh, press uh, minorities or majorities. And then finally, and this is, I mean, it's all so present, he's looking ahead and focuses on new media technologies, in particular the broadside press, which is just getting up and running in the late 18th century, and believes, you'll love this, uh, Jeff, he thinks that an enlightened class of journalists, whom he calls the literati, will use the new press slowly to diffuse reason across the republic, writing things like the Federalist Papers, which were published in the New York newspapers a few uh, days after they were written, and that as a result, uh, reason could prevail because you couldn't make decisions fast because of size. And it's obvious, as I described these cooling mechanisms and the emphasis on geography as an antidote to faction, that all of this is now up for grabs. And we should run through the various things that have destroyed these cooling mechanisms. But the most obvious one is social media, which makes possible uh, geographically dispersed factions motivated by passion rather than reason to organize quickly, to vote quickly, and to oppress minorities without 
uh, uh, a passion being given a chance to diffuse so and dissipate. Just, just take us back a little bit and talk about the disputes among the founders on these questions. So Madison is at one poll. Talk about how other founders viewed um, the possible threats to American democracy. Their central concern is that uh, Shays Rebellion. Shays Rebellion is a group of uh, farmers and debtors who don't who believe that the uh, debts they owe should be forgiven, and as a result, they arm themselves and demand the issuance of paper money. And Madison says that this is a threat to property rights, and says that the central object of the republic should be the protection of private property. Now, he's not a pro-corporate aristocrat. He also looks forward to the year 1930, and he fears that inequality of conditions will be so great uh, between the rich and the poor that they won't be able to deliberate together. Once again, the Athenian uh, demos is his model, and he's especially concerned about one class oppressing the other. It could be defined economically. He's also afraid about religious factions. He's afraid of political factions, and he's concerned about parties. who, Who among the founders wasn't afraid? (laughs) <laughs> they, I, you know, they were, they were also optimistic, but they were, well, Jefferson was the greatest idealist, but Jefferson is afraid of something else, which is an overweening federal government, and the anti-federalists led by Jefferson believe in small-scale communities and think that only farmers and uh, producers rather than uh, manufacturers can uh, deliberate slowly and master the facts that are necessary for democracy. The central concern, really, the central fear is a lack of education because the whole system will collapse unless the citizenry is armed with knowledge. Madison says that a popular republic without the means of acquiring popular information is a prelude to a tragedy or a farce. So they're all concerned that uh, people are educated enough to be able to make good decisions and to govern So themselves. you're describing a situation today in which we have social media that moves so fast and doesn't have filters against falsehood, any, any noticeable filters, obviously, and we could talk about this in a second, um, and you combine that um, with, well, I want to talk about some other, because it's not only social media, but you're describing, you're describing a system that's already submerged, I think. I mean, if Madison were to come back today, he would say, this is not what I thought would happen. Um, yes, in many respects. And the central concern, we'll, let's, we, we'll work ourselves up to social media, but the central fear is polarization. So polarization is the definition of faction. Remember, a faction is a mobilized minority or a majority motivated more by self-interest. Can I, can uh, I interrupt you for one second? This is, this is one of the interesting things about the founders. The, the, the level of idealism or call it naivete, they really believed that they could set up a system that would not devolve into parties. How did they come to that idea? Because it seems absurd, obviously, given where we are. Well, and it's especially poignant given the fact that Madison, who devises the whole system to avoid parties, presides over the creation of the first party, the Democratic-Republican Party, along with Jefferson uh, in 1800, right after the whole thing starts. But parties turn out to be a substitute for the cooling mechanisms the framers hoped for. Parties, although not anticipated by the framers, are initially coalitions of like-minded people united around shared constitutional ideas. So one of the great party theorists, it turns out, I didn't know any of this stuff before you gave me this assignment for the magazine, was Martin Van Buren, of all people, after Andrew Jackson. Our greatest president. No, but one of the greatest theorists of constitutional uh, uh, party systems, 
defends the Democratic Republican Party as one devoted to states' rights and the rights of producers rather than a national uh, Hamiltonian democracy and financiers. And for much of the 19th century, the Democratic and then the Republican Party, founded around union and then ultimately in opposition to slavery, uh, are defined in constitutional terms and also unite Eastern manufacturers with uh, uh, Western uh, farmers in the case of the Republicans and for the Democrats, uh, uh, there are different coalitions. So the parties, although feared by the framers as factions, end up forming a kind of cooling mechanism that allows ideas and reason to prevail. That, among other things, Madison feared, and I think he wasn't alone among the founders, feared the idea that presidents would directly communicate with the American people. Is that a fair... Uh, assessment? You know, the National Constitution Center, and all of you who are friends know this, is, is nonpartisan. It's the only uh, institution in America created by the U.S. Congress to educate and illuminate ideas about the Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. I can say with complete nonpartisan virtue that uh, the idea of a tweeting president would be a Madisonian dystopia. It's, <laughs> it's the worst thing he could have imagined. And that's also not a partisan statement because our first tweeting president was Barack Obama, who was the first one to set up a Twitter they account. They had slightly different Twitter styles. They did have different Twitter styles. I would like to note for the record. But they're, they were, you know, they're, I follow, they're, they're both worth following, but Madison would not have followed either Obama or Trump because Madison says in Federalist 10 that direct communication between representatives and the people, as you suggested, is the evil to be avoided. He rejects the idea that constituents can directly instruct their representatives, which was one of the proposed constitutional amendments because he wants cooling mechanisms. So the idea of the plebiscitary presidency, deriving its power from the people and directly communicating with them is a Madisonian nightmare, but it's not President Trump or President Obama's fault. The, the villain here, George Will, came to the Constitution Center recently and said, all of American history can be seen as a battle between two Princetonians, James Madison and Woodrow Wilson. And it was Wilson in the election of 1912 who insists, along with his fellow populist progressive Theodore Roosevelt, that the president is a steward, a tribune of the people who directly channels their will. His opponent in 1912 is my hero. I have this little book out now, a biography of that underappreciated constitutional hero, William Howard Taft. Who knew? Taft is in the election of 1912, sees both Wilson and demagogues, uh, Wilson and Roosevelt as demagogues who are directly appealing to the people, calling for the judicial recall of decisions by popular vote, and is defending the Constitution, the Madisonian vision of the presidency, against these new populist forces, which culminate in the imperial tweeting presidency. So stay, stay on this for a minute. How did Wilson, or, or, or first Teddy Roosevelt and then Wilson, how did they overwhelm the defenses that had been built into the system to keep the president from being this imperial president, from being this person who communicates directly to the American people over the heads of their elected representatives? They did it through... Uh, Executive orders. So Roosevelt implements all of his environmental policies and his antitrust policies by issuing executive orders and circumventing Congress. This appalls William Howard Taft, a former judge who didn't want to be president. His wife and Roosevelt made him be president, pines to be on the Supreme Court and eventually achieves his dream as chief justice and as one of the greatest chief justices since John Marshall. But Taft comes in and says, I agree that we should protect the environment and prosecute the trust, but I want to persuade Congress to do it. 
uh, so that it can be on firm constitutional grounds. And Taft, just one more beat here, not to special plead, Taft actually lowers the tariff for the first time since 1894 by persuading Congress to lower tariffs something, and withdraws more land for environmental protection in one term than Roosevelt's dead in two. So the combination of executive orders and also obviously new communications technologies. Then it was the gramophone. You can actually hear the record duels of Taft and Wilson and Roosevelt. And then the radio and then this is perfected by Franklin Roosevelt, allows the president to communicate directly with uh, people in a way that makes the constitutional scruples of the Madisonian presidency look quaint. And, of course, Taft was not a very successful president. So mass communication and quick communication um, violate uh, the spirit of what Madison was trying to achieve. There are other things, though. Um, Talk about gerrymandering. Uh, in, 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 in this equation. I mean, in other words, you know, I, th- I think what's useful here is like a list of three or four of the things that have brought us to this day. And I, and I recognize the overwhelming power of social media to skew the relationship between the government and its people, but there are other things. No, you're, we have to, it's very important that we set up the social media question by doing exactly what you said and identifying the underlying structural causes that have destroyed the cooling mechanism. The second is, you can call it gerrymandering, bless you, or you can call it polarization. Um, we are now more polarized. Gerrymandering being just a symptom of polarization. A, a symptom of polarization. We are now more polarized in America, according to objective measures, than at any time since the Civil War. Not since the Civil War have red and blue America been so separated as measured by the fact that in 1960, the most liberal Republicans and the most conservative Democrats in Congress overlapped by 50%. Now there is no overlap, no overlap between the parties. That's how far apart Americas are. And the causes of that, the most dramatic one, is geographic self-sorting. Red and blue Americans are living in different places. So geographic self-sorting combined with gerrymandering, which is drawing districts in ways that uh, fence out people from the other party, is then further solidified by virtual filter bubbles and echo chambers. And all of these factors make it possible for people of one point of view never to hear people of the other point of view. And that's the Madisonian dystopia. That's the definition of faction. The whole Madisonian system is designed to ensure that people of different backgrounds, my goodness, large states and small states, slaveholders and abolitionists, all are supposed to be able to deliberate together in the common good. Now because of polarization, which is the greatest underlying force, and we should identify more causes of that, all of that Madisonian What are the other causes possible. of polarization? Uh, well, um, campaign uh, finance has not uh, made things better. The fact that uh, representatives and uh, senators have to appeal to uh, subsects of donors rather than more broadly to the middle have uh, made their, uh, them more susceptible to appeal to the extremes. And then ironically, it's a very perverse Uh, series of incentives, Citizens United may have made things even worse by harming the parties. It's a complicated story. The parties originally feared as engines of faction ended up dissipating them. And when parties are strong, party leaders can choose moderate candidates who can appeal to swing voters and to the other side. Once they are undermined and their ability to raise money is undermined, then uh, once again, we're back to direct democracy and extreme polarized candidates appealing to their most mobilized and extreme bases. So all of these are symptoms of the problem we began with, which is 
pop, which is direct democracy and demagogues. When when the people uh, are directly being appealed to, uh, then we tend to get more extreme and be guided by passion rather than reason. So it's it's obvious how um, the quickness of everything, the 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 inability of our system to build in cooling periods anymore. Um, so that rational thought can prevail over over impulsivity. I understand how that affects the presidency, obviously, and the Congress. Talk about the third branch, um, because it seems as if there are some immunities built into that system um, that, that we don't see in legislative and executive branch. Or is that... Am I being too hopeful about the future of the judicial branch? No, I think it's very important right now to give the judicial branch credit for being more Madisonian than any of the other three branches. And I want you all to read the Supreme Court decisions that are coming down this week and came down last week. It is striking and important that many of them were not five to four decisions. They're really surprising. Remember the Masterpiece Cake case, the Baker case that everyone thought was going to be five to four? The fact that that was... uh, 7-2, and that uh, Kagan and Breyer repeatedly joining the conservatives to converge around narrow opinions that avoid sweeping constitutional resolutions and instead decide things technically is John Roberts' vision. And John Roberts, is his hero is John Marshall and William Howard Taft, and he thinks it is extremely important in this polarized age for the judicial branch to rise above politics and not to be okay. just as... Po- pa- the pause. I mean, there's a lot to be said about... No, 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 because I want to go down a rabbit hole here. No, no. Because there's something that... I mean, you know this. You, you know the Supreme Court intimately. Um, we all are hearing something very interesting about a new dynamic on the Supreme Court, which is that the newest justice um, is not playing by those same Roberts rules. Not those Roberts rules, the John Roberts rules. Um, and, and, and politics is kind of infiltrating in, in, a way, um, in a way that we hadn't seen before. Can you give us just, just give us a, a snapshot of what might be changing on the Supreme Court with uh, the rise of judges like Neil Gorsuch and obviously... He's not the last one, given that Trump has at least two years, if not six years more, um, in office. There is a gasp in the, in the audience. <laughs> no, you, you are actually right. There are more Democrats here That's than Republicans. Right. Yes, Remember, you are, the National you, Constitution Center Spirit on a nonpartisan basis. Um, yes. It is not right to say that Neil Gorsuch is, has infiltrated politics into the Supreme Court, but he is a Jeffersonian, not a Hamiltonian, and he... Uh, like uh, Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas, will follow the original understanding of the Constitution uh, regardless of where it leads. So his dissenting opinion in the digital privacy case is so interesting. It's basically a concurrence. He would have joined the majority, but he wanted to decide it on grounds of our property rights and our data rather than our reasonable expectations. John Roberts joins the liberals in recognizing the privacy expectations. But the point is that it's true that Justice Gorsuch is less interested in compromising because he's not a pragmatist. He's a Jeffersonian originalist. But I could well imagine him both ruling against the administration if he felt that the separation of powers was being threatened or congressional prerogatives uh, were threatened or the president was threatening free speech. And it's, it's not a Republican versus Democratic thing. It is true, though, and I'm, everyone is wondering this, uh, if you covered the Supreme Court, people want to know one thing. When will Justice Kennedy retire? Friends, I can assure you, no one knows when Justice Kennedy is going to retire. Aside Justice from Kennedy Justice Kennedy, he knows. Last year, at the clerk's party, he came up and said, "Ladies and gentlemen, I have a very important announcement. The bar is open." <laughs> Who knows? He has a sense. He has a flair for the dramatic. You know. When it, but when he retires, that 
not only does it transform American jurisprudence more fundamentally than at any time since I have been covering the court for you know more than two decades, but it also changes John Roberts's dynamics to seek compromise because he no he no longer needs to bring in the middle. He can ha do everything by five to four, six to three votes, and we'll see whether this vision continues. But back to the Madisonian point, it's it's really important that the, the judiciary. Uh, is different from the political branches in a couple ways. It's not a direct democracy, not directly accountable to the people. It deliberates slowly. It doesn't make quick decisions. It takes almost a whole year to decide things like the digital privacy case. It deliberates in secret. This turns out to be really important too. When you The Constitutional Convention from May 25th to September 17th uh, four months, they wrote the greatest document of human freedom ever, and it was in secret. There were no leaks. Now, when you have tweeting congresspeople in real time, or tweeting presidents, taking positions and digging in their heels before there's time for compromise, then compromise is impossible because you've uh, identified so, yourself with one camp. So I, for all these reasons, the judiciary is both, there's plenty to object exactly. to. Obviously, it's been polarized and things are political, but much less so than the other branches. And it's because of its institutional design, and it's also serving a Madisonian check against the excesses of popular enthusiasm in a way that the other branches aren't. So now many progressives who had formerly favored judicial deference to the president and Congress, I mean, you're all, your, your gasps suggested, want the judges to stand up to Trump. And I think if the uh, transgressions are really serious, they will do just that. Well, let's... Step back for one for one moment to the president. I'm going to step back much further. Step, I'm yeah, don't, don't follow that. Uh, step forward now yeah. um, <laughs> and and answer this question um, because our whole conversation, I realize, is built on a certain assumption um, that Madison is correct. What's wrong though with a strong presidency? A strong president who responds directly to what he or she perceives to be the needs and wants of the American people. Uh, okay, uh, Pre President Wilson, you made you made a very good case. The, Will Wilson has this very, uh, you know, dramatic book, uh, Congressional Government and then Our Constitution and Its Government, where he says that a president uh, li limbing and responding to and channeling the will of a great people and bringing with him Congress is the representation of popular sovereignty. And whether or not you buy that, and I emphatically don't, because Wilson was the first president to criticize both the separation of powers and natural rights, and it's the antithesis of the Madisonian system, it's clear that you're not going to have a successful presidency built around the vision of a William Howard Taft. I mean, it just doesn't work in an age of new technologies. But so, why, why wouldn't it work? Let's talk about what a presidency... What, what a presidency in the modern era would look like if the president adhered to at least something akin to Madison's vision. I mean, if you... you they know, wouldn't be on TV all the time, for one thing. They would not be on TV. They would send their... Uh, they, they wouldn't lobby Congress. Taft, in the middle of the biggest tariff debate since the one we're having now, sent a 340-word message to Congress saying, please lower the tariff, as I said in my inaugural address. If you want the reasons, you can read them there. And Congress was stunned. You know, they expected a state paper, but he thought the Constitution gives the president the authority to suggest legislation but not to lobby for it, and as a result, he got rolled. I don't think you can go back to that. But, we, you know, Barack Obama was the most cerebral and judicial president since President Taft, another former constitutional law professor, as were Wilson and Clinton. But Obama felt compelled to rule by executive orders because polarization is so great that even if he wanted to go through Congress, he thought he couldn't. 
So the polarization makes it hard to have a completely... And, and this is also Congress's fault for not exercising its constitutional duty. Congress could tomorrow, if it chose, if all of these free trade Republicans and Democrats had the courage of their constitutional convictions, repeal this flimsy law from the 1950s that gives the president the power to lower tariffs in the name of national security. Congress has the power over tariffs, not the president. But it can't do so and won't because of polarization and so forth. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. Thanks for listening. Big ideas are coming to the Aspen Ideas Festival next month. Hear former Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson talk immigration with Vicente Fox. He served as president of Mexico. Decision researcher Nicholas Epley explains technology's role in making us feel lonely. And a team of scientists are learning more about human cells so doctors can better diagnose and treat disease. Aviv Regev of the Human Cell Atlas Project describes what cell reference maps will look like. Hear these ideas and many more at the Aspen Ideas Festival and Aspen Ideas Health, June 20th through June 29th in Aspen, Colorado. Get your pass today at aspenideas.org. Here's the rest of today's conversation. Jeffrey Goldberg. Go to this social media question. This again, another assumption built into this conversation is that we're we're well down the slippery slope, and there's really no climbing up, except if our habits and the companies that feed our habits in social media change in some way. What what would bring us back to some measure of um, deliberation in the way government makes decisions, executive branch and the legislative branch? Um, and would it be constitutional to make these fixes or however you want to talk about it? And what I'm talking about is, is regulating the social media companies that are responsible for distributing the information, much of it true, much of it not, that is exacerbating polarization. Yes, the question of what the platforms can do to resurrect Madisonian deliberation, which is... Uh, I mean, the genie's out of the bottle. The genie's out of the bottle. So what can they do? Um, there are a couple small examples uh, that there are already uh, that they could do or are doing. So, so it turns out that people share fake news much more readily than real news. This is another Madisonian. Because it's emotionally here. satisfying. Because it's emotionally satisfying, and people are more likely to share what is emotionally satisfying. And researchers predicted the Brexit vote in advance because they saw that the, the Leave messages were more emotionally galvanizing and more likely to be shared. So that's a huge Madisonian. And, and Facebook actually, uh, through its algorithm, rewards anger. It rewards anger. So it could change the algorithm, so it rewards reason. And Facebook could choose only to put high on the algorithm stuff that you actually read. Facebook knows whether you read something or share it without reading it. So if they put high on the algorithm stuff that people have spent a minute or five minutes reading, that would be more likely to disseminate fake news. That's one small uh, example. There are also uh, new sites I just found one where uh, they're designed to set up reasoned debates in the comment section, both to downplay the trolling stuff and also to present the opposite point of view so that you can look on the Second Amendment. I forgot the name of the website. It's really Madisonian. Uh, and uh, will present a Second Amendment debate that has the arguments for and against and sort of out, out. But you're asking 
people, you're asking humans to change their habits. I mean, and, and the habits are ingrained. We, 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 we do seek emotional satisfaction. I mean, it's, it's much less satisfying to listen to, if you're an anti-Second Amendment or you're a gun control person, you really most of the time don't want to actually hear a reasonable argument, if there's a reasonable argument, on the other side of that debate. It's, you know, it's not... Facebook, Google search, they're exacerbating pre-existing conditions. Absolutely. And, ba- and back to Athens. This is why the... That was a great Athenian, pivot, by the way. It is. Well, From I, Instagram I, to Athens and one, you know... Look, I, it was, I can't tell you how incredibly inspiring it was to sit at the Acropolis, Acropolis and to read how the Athenians know about passion and they, don't, they understand that it's part of human nature, but they want a structured debate so that demagogues, which means speaking directly to the people can't appeal to passions uh, illicitly, but ultimately the Athenians believed it's up to the people to educate themselves. We have to restrain ourselves and use this remarkable tool of the internet. My goodness, the fact that you can go online and get almost any book in the world on Kindle or the greatest music ever created or uh, read the Federalist Papers, or read about the anti-democratic tradition in Athenian politics, which I did on the plane home, is, uh, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a Madisonian dream if we have the discipline to use it properly, or we can watch cat videos, <laughs> and, uh, which I love. I'm not pleased. I know there are a lot of cat, cat video f- friends uh, in the audience, but all of us face a, a struggle. Tell them about my big idea. To have the cat videos teach democratic norms. Have the cat. You know, you know, John Oliver. You can infiltrate stuff into these cat videos, by the way. John Oliver did it. He had the Supreme Court with cats, actually, and it was really very effective. And it was a great teaching tool. The I'm just putting it out there. For, Anybody can take it. The school has rock for the, for the 21st century. This is a struggle that all of us have within ourselves. Every day, we choose how to use our moments of leisure to cultivate our reason, or and also our reason passion or to indulge the lower emotions. Louis Brandeis, who believed that 5th century Athens was the apotheosis of civilization, his favorite book, he would give it out to everyone he met, so I'm recommending it to you. It was called The Greek Commonwealth by Alfred Zimmern, and he thought that it just encapsulated all of the highest of civilization. He was so excited to learn that the Greek word for leisure is unemployment, a scholai. He thought, what a happy land in which unemployment is a form of leisure. But he believed that leisure was a time not to work less hard but more hard on cultivating our faculties of reason. And that's why channeling Jefferson and the Enlightenment folks, he was so keen on choosing the moments of leisure that we have to govern ourselves by reason rather than passion so that we can be full citizens in a democracy. And just to... You want, uh, no, 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 no. I just yeah. Go on, go on. But I have you, one you, more you, question on Facebook. Uh, um, you, you, we have to do this. We have an obligation to do this because the future of democracy is at stake. The poll, Yasha Monk is here. He has this great new book, The People Versus Democracy. He found that young people, 43% of young people are willing to consider strongmen and authoritarians as an alternative to democracy as opposed to 19% of we older people. That is terrifying. On the other hand, uh, people who have been educated about the structures of government and civics and the Constitution are more likely to support judicial review, an independent judiciary, and the structures of constitutionalism. 
Education in general is not enough. It turns out that highly educated people are more likely to be polarized than those who are less highly educated. All we smarty pantses, the fact that we have good educations is no guarantee that we're not going to be just as passionate and polarized as people who are less fortunate. But those of us who have taken the time, as we're doing here today, to learn together and to learn about history and to learn about civics and to learn about the structure of government are more likely to be guided by reason. And that's why it's so urgently important to inspire our fellow citizens to learn about civics and the Constitution so as well. So we'll take questions in a second, but I want, you to, yes, it is. It is. I want you to come back to this very specific question. The three most powerful companies on earth in terms of shaping perceptions about reality over the last 10 years or so are Facebook, Google, or Google, Facebook, and Twitter maybe in that order. Imagine you're sitting up here with the, with the people who can change the algorithms, right? The guys in the basement who could actually manipulate the little the dials um, and push out what you and I would consider empirical truth as opposed to fake news or, uh, or, or highly emotive, uh, uh, highly suggestible uh, material that provokes immediate responses of the kind that Madison was so worried about. What would you tell them? Um, how would you guarantee them that their business model would still work if they, and I'm making an assumption that you agree with me here, if they believe that, that what they're doing is actually bad for the cause of truth and therefore democracy? How do you convince these companies, be, apart from legislation, which is a whole other question, how do you convince them to change? It's a very hard question. We're going to have a panel tomorrow on this and a bunch of great scholars perhaps will cast some light on it. I... I'm not convinced that regulation is the answer. First of all, it would raise serious First Amendment questions. If the government were to say to Facebook, you have to promote reason rather than passion, that would be unconstitutional according to current First Amendment doctrine. And there are those who say the First Amendment should be changed, and they also say that the government should be able to regulate hate speech online because hate speech uh, spews passion. And I disagree with that. I'm a traditional First Amendment. I believe with Madison and Brandeis, that the best response to evil counsels is good ones, and as long as there's time enough to deliberate, that's of course the crucial question, then you have to allow people to make these decisions for themselves. You could appeal to the tech people's sense of civic duty, and you know, they do have this sense, and they've, uh, Facebook has commissioned Nate Persily at Stanford, a great scholar, both to look at the empirical problem, is the real problem hate speech, or is it polarization, and to identify solutions. So I think that if there are plausible, meaningful solutions that can be implemented without challenging their whole business model, they would do that. So definitely the research project is helpful. But I think that ultimately the response, and this was the Athenian point, is going to have to come from citizens and from education, in particular from civics education, because for all that the companies might do, I can't... Let me just give one example of what we don't want to do. Europe has a totally different First Amendment tradition than we do, and they've adopted this sweeping new right called the right to be forgotten online. So if this were Europe, uh, and one of you started tweeting, Jeff is going on too long, he's too earnest, he's not talking enough about social media, and is talking too much about Athens, after the panel, I could sue you, or rather sue Google and Facebook and demand that they remove your scurrilous tweet, uh, which might be true, but is deeply embarrassing to me and offends my dignity. And then Google would have to decide if I'm a public figure and if your tweet is in the public interest. And if they guess wrong and are second-guessed by a European privacy commissioner, they're liable for up to uh, uh, 20% of their annual income, which in Google's case was, whatever, $70 billion last year. So fines of you know, tens of millions of dollars per incident concentrates the mind. And they've removed 40% of the takedown requests they've received, including requests to take down 
stuff about the right to be forgotten itself. So I give that as a cautionary tale of the dangers of overregulation, the idea that centralized bodies or administrators can be empowered to decide what is in the people's interest and how to protect dignity and reason over passion and hate is what the framers rejected. Madison in the Virginia and Kentucky resolution is denouncing John Adams' attempt to prosecute people for sedition. Sedition is criticizing the king, criticizing the president. And Madison and Jefferson thought that because of the natural rights of free speech that come from God or nature and not from government, we have to trust not the government. We don't trust the government at all, but we trust the people enough to cultivate their faculties of reason so that they can make those decisions for themselves. I think we have a question back there. Thank you so much for this wonderful uh, discussion and conversation. Uh, transparency in politics, in democracy, has been very critical, at least in our democratic process. And yet Citizen United, in a very fundamental way, um, has caused that transparency to essentially disappear. Are we stuck with this? Are we stuck with Citizens United? Yes, we are stuck with Citizens United. Whatever we think of Citizens United, there are two ways to change it. It could be overturned by a constitutional amendment, which requires uh, two-thirds of both houses of Congress to propose. They're not going to propose it, because they, uh, or uh, two-thirds of state legislatures and then three-quarters uh, of the state legislatures ratifying, and that's not going to happen. Or it could be overturned, and the likelihood is that it's going to be further reinforced, and if Justice Kennedy retires, and he's pretty deregulatory, to have the Supreme Court impose even fewer restrictions on speech. But you say transparency. We're not stuck with opacity. Citizens United explicitly said the disclosure rules are perfectly consistent with the First Amendment. Only Justice Thomas dissented on that point because he said the framers cared about anonymity, which they did. But all this is to say that if Congress were to require radical transparency of all donations, that would be consistent with Citizens United. So that's something to really lobby Congress and the state legislatures about and to demand transparency. Just raise your hand so I can see. Um, There's a question over there if you can. I really appreciate the historical overview as well, but I'd like to challenge the idea that democracy is at stake. Perhaps the American expression of democracy, the American experiment is at stake here, but there could be an America 2.0 that's better than the American 1.0 that moves in one direction, Madisonian or Jeffersonian or the other. And, you know, I've begun to seriously wonder how many more federal election cycles the people of California are going to be disenfranchised. And perhaps the Republic of California will emerge. I mean, how many democracies today have had the same geopolitical boundaries for 200 years? And I'm just hoping they take us with them, and I think they will because we have their water. That's a noble statement of which the later Jefferson would have been proud because he endorsed secession. He liked the idea of the states uh, right before the Civil War seceding from the federal government if they didn't like it. Um, I wouldn't endorse that path. I totally feel the empathize with the indignity of citizens of California who feel that the Electoral College is preventing them from expressing their will. And states' rights for progressives is a very productive way to go. And California's remarkable experiments in democracy would not only... Actually, California has the best alternative to gerrymandering, which is your nonpartisan voting system and the the first-past-the-post systems are better models for how to select moderate candidates than any other state except for Maine, which is now also experimenting on that score. And that's why Heather Gerken, the new dean of Yale Law School, has a new movement called States' Rights for Progressives, which encourages states like California 
in a Madisonian way to resist uh, a one-size-fits-all national solution. But secession would be... Uh, that's the that's what we're talking here is not just an American problem. These forces of populism are challenging liberal democracy across the world, and the impulse to secede we are seeing in Britain and Scotland, in uh, in in, Catal- in Catalonia and Spain, in in France and Canada, and uh, whether you're a Jeffersonian or a Hamiltonian, the great insight of the American framers was that we the people as a whole are sovereign. That was James Wilson's insight, and Lincoln invoked it when he resisted the constitutional authority of the South to secede. He said, since we the people as a whole created the Union, a majority of we the people as a whole would be necessary to change it. And his insistence that the Union be preserved above all was so crucially important, and now at this terrible time of polarization that is ripping apart this country... I think it is so important, not, I completely understand it, but not to engage in the instinct just to completely wall ourselves off even more, both virtually and geographically. But I love your notion that we could imagine a new America, a new liberal democracy within our constitutional system, united by these ideals that unite us. Uh, and that is uh, definitely a possibility, and it could have rousing music and theme songs, just like that one. Music. Yeah, that would be great. I can think of a couple of states I'd like to see leave. Right on, right on. Not California. Just say no. I'm not saying. I'm Just not saying say which no. ones. Um, no. There's a question over here. We're only going to have time. Please make these questions very short and in the form of a question because we're not going to have a lot of time. Well, thank you. I'm from New Orleans. Uh, polarization. Uh, we have a president who has abused, in my opinion, the First Amendment. Uh, because of what he perceives as weakness in our uh, voting population versus uh, President Obama, who was steeped in history, understood the constitutional framework, and was stymied also in many respects. So with the platitudes of being steeped in constitutional framework, what do we do? What do we do? to raise up, what do we do to support our political leaders to put this guy where he belongs? All right, thank you, sir. We're going to Jeff. Take that anywhere you want. These are not platitudes. These are fundamental ideals. And they're ideals that we share, not in a platitudinous way, but a profound way. I just, I'm going to put in a plug now. Some of you have heard me do it. Uh, for this great tool, the interactive constitution that the Constitution Center has created online. We've brought the best liberal and conservative scholars in America together to write about every clause of the Constitution, describing what they agree about and what they disagree about. It's the most inspiring thing to click on the Second Amendment and see the liberals and conservatives with a thousand words like a unanimous Supreme Court opinion. Uh, and it turns out they agree about much more than we would have thought about history and tradition. So as the interactive constitution has gotten 17 million hits since it launched two years ago, and that's convinced me in this incredibly meaningful meaning and full and inspiring job that I have about trying to inspire people to learn about the constitution, that for all the polarization, the incredible disagreement about policy, the anger that Democrats have about this president and Republicans had about the previous one, we actually are united around these ideals, but we have to learn about them. They're complicated. I, I, Jeff, I was surprised to learn about the peculiarly central element of time 
in Madisonian democracy. I learned it from a book by Greg Weiner called Madison's Metronome. It's an academic book, and it was brilliant, and it changed the way I understood the founding. So I think it's urgently important to remember that we are united by these ideals of the Constitution, but to take the time to learn about them so we can explain them to others. There's a hand over there. Yeah, thanks. Wanted to know if you agree that if Ruth Bader Ginsburg does retire or die and is replaced by someone like Gorsuch, whether Roe v. Wade would be overturned and whether gay marriage would be overturned as well. So Roe, I asked Justice Stevens this question. I've actually asked RBG this question in an interview as well, and she thinks that Roe would not be formally overturned. It would just be chipped back even further. But she says the real impact would fall on poor women who already don't have access to uh, choice in states where abortion is already very restricted. Uh, so she thinks that the chipping away of Roe in practice uh, would be less significant than access issues, which she thinks are central. Ma- marriage equality, I don't think, would be overturned at this point. It is so been so embraced by the culture of this country among Republicans as well as Democrats that uh, I, I, on the, I don't think there's an appetite for it. And there was a really interesting, you know, the most significant tax case the Supreme Court decided in 10 years last year that says that uh, online retailers uh, can uh, have to charge sales tax or, or states can make them. Um, Roberts joined a group of liberals in talking about the importance of precedent. He said he thought the old tax case was wrong, but he really cared about precedent. And it was actually it was a mind-blowingly interesting co- coalition of liberals and conservatives on the pro-precedent and anti-precedent side. RBG there was in the uh, let's keep the case even though it was wrongly decided. That suggests to me that there are enough justices on the court who care about precedent that they would not lightly overturn the gay marriage decision. I have time for one more. It's all the way in the back, I think. So I come from the world of counter-extremism, and generally, like, in, in counter-extremism, we use emotions to take people away from the right radicalization. So I'm wondering, can we make democracy also emotionally appealing and sexy for people <laughs> to actually go away from populism to go towards peace and democracy? That, it's a large, huge question. I know we could learn much from you about what you found to be effective. And sending uh, celebrities who have credibility in that world into into those communities can be hugely effective. And the, 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 the Athenians here understood this. And for them, uh, since emotions and passions exist, civic festivals of union are tremendously important. I don't know if those are still possible in America, but I think your instinct that recognizing the reality of passions and mobilizing them in a reasonable and constructive way is a big part of the answer. I have a very short question. But I think it's significant. By the way, I love what you said. Uh, Thank you. What are the boundaries of free speech when they potentially can harm a cultural group or an individual? Such a great question. Um, uh, Brandeis said in a case called Whitney versus California, the central lesson of free speech in American history, and I want you all to know it. Brandeis said that speech in America can only be banned if it's intended to and likely to cause imminent violence. Intended to and likely to cause imminent violence. Not it might cause violence or it might cause people to think bad thoughts, but go shoot Jeff now because this panel has been too long. If that's a serious threat and it's likely to be acted on, that absolutely should be stopped. But short of that, then even the most hateful thoughts have to be allowed. And this is sort of a scenery... We have to end, right? This is a scenery-chewing exercise. 
but I, as a party trick, and some of you have heard me do it, I can quote, I'm going to quote Brandeis in Whitney about why it's important to only allow speech to be bad if it's intended to and likely to cause imminent violence. And although this is meant to appeal to your reason rather than your passions, it's the most inspiring statement of free speech in American history. And it just so beautifully encapsulates the theme of this panel, which is this faith that as long as there's time enough to deliberate, then reason will prevail. So, so can I do that? Okay, here we go. This is Whitney versus California, 1927, Louis Brandeis. And he begins by appealing not to Madison and Hamilton and the Constitution makers of 1787, but to Jefferson and the revolutionaries of 1776. He says, those who made our revolution believe that the final end of the state was to make men free to develop their faculties and that in its government, the deliberative forces should prevail over the arbitrary. They valued liberty both as an end and as a means. They believed liberty to be the secret of happiness and courage to be the secret of liberty. That's a quotation from Pericles' funeral oration as translated by Alfred Zimmern. They believe that freedom to think as you will and to speak as you think are means indispensable to the discovery and spread of political truth. That without free speech and assembly, discussion would be futile. That with them, discussion affords ordinarily adequate protection against the dissemination of noxious doctrine. That the greatest threat to freedom is an inert people. That public discussion is a political duty and that this should be a fundamental principle of the American government. It is so inspiring, and you said I would leave with a sense of optimism, and I, you, I must be optimistic that as long as we can be inspired by these great ideals and take the time to discipline ourselves to develop our faculties of reason, which is such a challenge but such a privilege, especially for us, we have the leisure, we have the opportunity, we have the means to use our moments of leisure to elevate our thinking and cultivate our faculties of reason and inspire others and spread the light and educate America. It is a hugely important task. The framers thought the experiment will succeed. And if we can rise to their challenge, I think it will too. Amen. Jeff, thank you everyone for coming. Appreciate it. Jeff Rosen is president and CEO of the National Constitution Center and a professor of law at George Washington University Law School. Read more about what Rosen discussed today in an article he wrote for The Atlantic called America is Living James Madison's Nightmare. There's a link in our show notes. He spoke with Jeffrey Goldberg, editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. Their conversation was held in late June 2018 at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our new website, aspenideas.org. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Jonathan Melgard, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.